for you. Um, I have no wisdom. I bring no great um, instruction. We just have God's word. And we want to sit together under the authority of God's word and uh, not to come and see what I have to say, but what God has to say. And uh, so I want you to see that in front of you as we work through this text together. Um, Maybe an odd place to start, but uh, how many of you remember the old movie, The Emperor's New Groove? Anyone else? Uh, an old say, yeah, okay, some of you guys. Um, this, this movie where the, uh, the arrogant young emperor gets turned into a llama, of all things. And uh, that movie has one of my favorite scenes of all time, um, Kronk. Kronk is this big, muscly meathead. Uh, he's actually a pretty good guy, but he happens to be the, uh, the henchman of the, the wicked sorcerer. And Kronk is sent in to kidnap the emperor. And he throws him in a sack, as one does, and over his shoulder. And as he's making his way out of the palace um, to this, like, Mission Impossible music. But, but as the camera zooms in, you, you slowly figure out it's not a soundtrack. Um, Kronk is making his escape, bounding down the stairs and sliding along walls and peeking around corners while he's singing his own theme music. Dun, 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 dun. Um, it's awesome. I love it. And, and I think the reason I love it is because there's a little bit of Kronk in all of us. Um, I think we're prone to that from time to time. Uh, we feel that. We, we, start to, we start to sing our own theme music. We like to think of ourselves as the hero in, in our own movie. And, and sometimes that's an action movie and we are doing awesome and walking away from explosions and uh, singing our own theme song. Sometimes it's a love story and we are on our way to happily ever after. Sometimes it's a heartbreaking drama where just everything seems to go wrong. Well, they all have one thing in common, our own selves cast in the leading role. We're the hero of the movie of our lives. And, and that is absolutely what we find going on for Jacob uh, in Genesis chapter 29. Um, he has been living large all of a sudden on the promises of God. Everything seems to be going his way. Um, he's, he's the hero in his own movie here. And yet the Lord's not done with him. The Lord's not going to leave him there. God will not allow him to carry on in that way. In fact, God has prepared this perfect sanctification plan for Jacob. Um, the deceiver is about to be deceived. Um, that's the title of our message this morning, um, The Deceiver Deceived. God's grace continues to be at work in his life through this a um, little bit of context, just kind of set up where we're coming from. Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac, so that he, as the younger son, would receive the blessing that was intended for the older son. Because of that, his older brother Esau was determined to murder him. And, and so his mother, Rebekah, um, puts it in the head of her father. Let's send Jacob away to go find a wife from, from my family in Haran. And, and she's thinking that will give him time to be away. Let Esau cool off a little bit. So Jacob is fleeing from his murderous brother, running away to a land he's never been, sleeping on the ground in the wilderness. And the Lord appeared to him there. God gave Jacob uh, the blessing of Abraham that he would multiply his offspring, that he would give him the land of Canaan, and, and that through him, through Jacob, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Yes, that's an amazing thing that lands on Jacob's shoulders. On top of that, God promised that he would be with Jacob, as we read earlier, that he would protect him and provide for him, that he would bring him back safely into this land. So the first words of chapter 29 um, literally can be translated, Jacob picked up his feet and went. I think there's a new spring in his step, renewed sense of purpose and, and life. And, and so off he went. And here into chapter 29, we'll read what happens next. We're going to take this chapter under these kind of two main headings. Um, verses 1 to 14, we see Jacob's pride. Jacob's pride. Follow along with me as I read chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey, came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. 
For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well in the water and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brother, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban and his, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth, which is unchanging and trustworthy in a, in a time that is constantly changing, where nothing can be trusted. So God, we come to your word this morning, first and foremost, to see you to come to know you in your glory and your majesty, to see your character, to understand your ways. Lord, may we be abiding in Christ as we read this text, as we walk through this, may we be um, getting to know you more in it. Father, that you would be glorified in us as you shape us and form us, as you renew our minds by your word. Lord, I pray if there's anything that I have prepared to say that is not of you, that is not true to your word, that those words would just fall to the ground and be forgotten and left behind. But Lord, that your word would go forth and that you would, as you promised, um, accomplish all that you have sent for it to do in us, Lord. Soften our hearts, open our ears now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's Jacob the promises of God fresh in his ear. He made his way to the east and eventually came upon a well. And there were three flocks there with shepherds waiting to be watered. Um, apparently moving the stone away was a, uh, a team effort. It may have been shepherd boys unable to move the large stone on their own. And so they would wait until all the shepherds were gathered and together move the stone and water their flocks. As Jacob came upon them, there's this, I think, hilarious conversation that ensues. This could be any truck stop in Alberta. Hey, how's it going? Good. Where are you from? Haran. Oh, you know Laban? Yeah, we know Laban. How's he doing? He's okay. Um, and, and then we get to the point of it. Here comes his daughter, Rachel. He's, he's reached the right destination. And, and then one of the shepherds points out over Jacob's shoulder Actually, here comes Laban's daughter now. And, and Jacob turns. You can just kind of set the stage here in your mind. You can see Rachel gliding elegantly over the crest of the hill, uh, sun shining through her hair, silky and brown, gracious, gracefully blowing in the wind. It's like a shampoo commercial. And all of a sudden, Jacob's tone changes, and he gets serious. Um, he is no longer interested in chit-chat and small talk with these other shepherds. Um, verse 7, um, he turns on them. What are you guys doing here? This is high day. It's not time for the sheep to be gathered to water. You, you should be out. You should be out pasturing your sheep. Go. Get out of here. They give the excuse. They can't move the stone without more help. They're, they're waiting. Um, Jacob then decides to seize the moment. Um, if you remember Genesis 24, Jacob's 
mother, Rebecca, was found at just such a well outside of Haran by Abraham's servant, quite likely the very same well. How many times would Jacob have heard that story growing up of God's providence, how God had provided a wife for his father at a well at Haran? And now armed with God's promises, expecting God's provision, he shows up at the well at Haran, and there is the daughter of Laban at just the right time, just as his mother had been. Look at verse 10. Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. He watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, and he kissed Rachel and he wept out loud. He is like Fabio, right? He comes down, he tosses his golden hair to the side, he pushes the little girly boy shepherds out of the way, and he moves the stone single-handedly, his muscles straining against his white shirt. And he walks up to Rachel and he grabs her and he kisses her. Like, mic drop moment. This is it. He's got it happening. Power move. He hasn't explained anything to Rachel yet. She has no idea who this guy is or what is going on. Um, But he's confident. The Lord has blessed my journey. This is what I came for. It's all coming together. It says then he wept. Um, I'm assuming he is just filled with joy. He's overwhelmed with emotion now that it's all come together. And only then does he explain to Rachel, um, I'm your father's relative. And so off she went to tell her father, um, and Laban welcomed Jacob into their home, and there he would stay for a month. And, and that's where we just want to pause. Um, this story um, has significant parallels with Genesis 24, and the story of Abraham's servant finding Rebekah at the well and the Lord's provision of, this, of a wife for Isaac. Um, so much so, I think it becomes clear that, that Moses intends for us to do a little bit of comparison here. I was reading through this with some brothers earlier this week. We're kind of doing a little preaching workshop together. And uh, we wrestled through this. What's, what's going on here? What's happening? What's the point here? I think the point is um, kind of like those pictures used to do as kids, two very similar pictures side by side. What's the first thing you do? You find the differences. It's all the same except couple of differences. And those differences become very stark as we compare um, Genesis 29 with Genesis 24. The first thing the servant did when he came to the well was bowed down, prayed to the Lord. 24.12, he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And then as soon as Rebecca came, remember she watered the camels, that was the sign that he had prayed for. And as soon as that was finished, verse 26 says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love, his faithfulness toward my master. As the servant then came home to Bethuel, um, the father of Laban and uh, Rebekah, Laban is the older brother at that time. The servant told how the Lord had blessed him and how the Lord had sent him there. He told Bethuel and and Laban how he had prayed and how the Lord answered his prayer. And then Bethuel agreed to let Rebekah go. And again, it says he worshiped the Lord. This is a a godly servant, and and it's an amazing example of of seeking God's will. Um, And it's a stark contrast to Genesis 29. Where does Jacob stop to pray? Can you find it? Where does he express his dependence on the Lord? Where does he stop to ask for God's help? Where does he thank God when it all comes together? Where does he worship? Actually, where is God at all? He's not even mentioned. Not down till verse 31 in this chapter does the name of God or any reference to God even appear. So you put these pictures side to side and there's, there's the well and the well and the wife and the wife and the one seeking the wife and the one seeking the wife and it's all there and God's timing, the difference is God is missing in 29 or the acknowledgement of God. God's providence is written all over this just like it was in 24. This is, this is God at work, but Jacob didn't even see it. He wasn't looking for it and he didn't recognize it when it happened. He's too busy singing his own theme song. 
He's too busy lifting heavy rocks and pushing little men out of the way because he's got it going on. God appeared to him on that journey. God rescued him from his trouble. God made these great promises to him. He even responded to the Lord in this this mighty vow, I will make you my God and I will serve you and I'll give you a tenth of all that I have. And, And I don't doubt that he was sincere, but then the moment things start to go well, he hardly gives God a second thought. He's now just carrying on in self-assured, self-confident, self-glorifying pride. He was eager to hear from the Lord when he was fearing for his life, when he was in need in the wilderness. But as soon as God has made these promises and things are going well, he, he just kind of tucks the Lord in his back pocket. I'll save that for later in case we need him. If I happen to have trouble. And he carries on as the hero of his own story. Moses would later warn Israel about this very danger. Having been rescued out of Egypt and and cared for through the wilderness and miraculously provided for, the people of Israel stood on the edge of the promised land. This was the fulfillment of those promises that God had been making to Abraham and to Jacob. And Moses writes this, to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 14. Take care, lest you forget the Lord, your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten your full and built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied and your heart be lifted up, And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Anybody wake up in a nicely built house this morning? Anybody have their belly filled with breakfast this morning? Nice comfortable ride in a car here to sit in a nice heated building in the warm sunshine. So easy to forget the Lord. Everything's going smoothly. In the midst of his kindness and his blessing, we don't turn away from God. We don't rebel against God or renounce him. We we just forget. Even though it was he who rescued us out of the darkest pit, the moment we're back to, to strolling along the garden path in peaceful sunshine, we think we've got it all on our own. It's okay. I got it now. Our prayer life lets up. Our time in the word becomes kind of an optional extra. That's a bonus should I have the opportunity. Our perspective on life shifts from from walking closely, clinging desperately to the Lord to just a vague idea of having God somewhere nearby. It's like break glass in case of emergency. I've got a God. Where are you with the Lord right now, today? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're in the midst of the trial. Maybe you're desperately clinging to him, just just hoping for enough grace to make it through another day. Um, This might sound strange to your ears. Don't overlook the beauty of that. Appreciate the closeness that you have with the Lord. Embrace that as you cling to him and need him desperately. That's a fantastic place to be in that sense. Or maybe things are going well. Kids are busy in school programs and life is full of activities and sure there's annoyances and there's hindrances, but, but overall things are under control. Life is, life is good. Don't be so distracted that by the, the blessings of God that, that you forget God. Remember where he has brought you from. Reflect on, on his goodness as, as the source of, of every good thing that we have. Seek him more diligently. Use that time to pursue relationship with him. Knowing how prone we are to forget, let's let's correct that. Don't be like Jacob who carried on in his pride. And I think the number one thing that Jacob forgot that we so often forget is that Even when we're rescued out of those trials and those hardships, even when we're pulled up out of the pit, we always bring our worst enemy with us. 
We're always walking along that garden path, arm in arm with the thing that holds the most power in this life to destroy us. It's you. We always bring ourselves with us. The reality is our our biggest problem is not somewhere outside of us. The biggest threat against us is inside of us. My number one enemy is me. It's my sin. It's the corruption that still exists in my heart. Sickness, pain, poverty, loneliness, any number of things. They, they come from outside and, and they, they threaten my, my comfort, my, my peace in this life. But it's only my sin that threatens my soul, that threatens my eternity. Reality is even on our best days, we are just not the hero of our own story. We are both victim and villain in need of God's rescue. He's the hero. Like Jacob, we we need to be turned away from our pride. We need to see the Lord's purpose. That's the shift that happens between verses 14 and 15. Jacob is going to go very abruptly from this mighty victor in his own mind, moved the stone and got the girl to the, to the victim of, of deceit and, and trickery. So here, um, verses 15 to 30, we see the Lord's purpose. Let me read this passage together, the second half of this chapter. Starting in verse 15, it says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what what your wages shall be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel, Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. And so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with this one, and I will give the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so. He completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Just like that, the great deceiver is deceived. There's some cultural elements, some literary elements here that I think would help us understand this account a little better. Firstly, um, we know Laban already from chapter 24. Um, We saw his greed and his manipulation. When the servant from Abraham came, he came with gifts of of gold and and precious stones and jewelry, and, and Laban was on it. Laban was quick to take advantage of that. It was Laban who tried to stall. Don't let Rebecca go too quickly. Maybe we can get a little more out of this guy. And so you can imagine why now Laban hears that the the son of his sister has come. He's got dollar signs in his eyes. And he comes running out to meet him. After about a month, Laban seems to be generous in suggesting to Jacob, um, should you serve me for nothing just because you're family? But that's not generous at all. Um, the answer there is yes. Yes, Jacob should have been serving his family for nothing without wages. And Laban, as the adopted father in this situation, 
should have been providing for Jacob, should have been setting him up, building up his own herd, giving him means and a a livelihood of his own, should have been sacrificially caring for his nephew. But, But Laban wants to shed the responsibility of family and make this just into a transactional economic agreement And so he asks Jacob, what shall your wages be? He's shielding himself from actually caring. And at this point, Moses interjects. And he tells us some interesting details about Laban's two daughters. And uh, there's an interesting line there. Um, The older daughter, Leah, it says her eyes were weak. And a lot of speculation, what does that mean? Her eyes were weak. Um, I read um, that she was nearsighted. One commentator uh, suggested partially blind. Another said maybe she was cross-eyed. Maybe she just didn't have that sparkle in her eyes that Rebecca did. Sorry, Rachel. Um, These two are going to confuse me. Um, I think it becomes pretty obvious when you just read the end of the sentence. That that compare-contrast helps us. Leah's eyes were weak, but... Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. We understand that. In fact, I think we understand that a little better than than we'd like. We're almost uncomfortable that the Bible would say this about a young lady, but it clearly does. Um, Rachel was attractive in face and in figure. Contrast, Leah had weak eyes. I think if that was written today uh, in our slang, maybe something like Leah was a little hard on the eyes. Leah wasn't much to look at. I think that's what he's getting at here. Um, And so, predictably, Jacob loved Rachel. And so he made Laban an offer that he couldn't refuse. Uh, A typical dowry, down payment on a wife, that was a process that they went through. Um, Usually, best we can guess, it was about 30 to 45 shekels in this time. Um, Maybe two or three years wages, so that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, But Jacob offers seven years of work right out of the gate. He is not bartering. He is trying to blow this out of the water. He's trying to, he's making a generous offer. Um, I think he's maybe partially motivated to, by, by not wanting to go back. He, he's not wanting to go uh, back home too soon. Hey, I'll stay seven years. And so Laban sees this, sees the desperation in Jacob's eyes and uh, capitalizes on it. He answers very ambiguously, doesn't he? It's better that I give her to you than to anyone else stay with me. He doesn't actually promise anything. He doesn't use any names. Uh, He's sly. Seven years are over. The time for the wedding came. Um, Laban threw a party. Without a doubt, the, the wine would be flowing. I think Laban was particularly careful to keep Jacob's glass just kind of topped up all night long. And as the party wound down, very likely that Jacob is at least slightly intoxicated. Um, He's driven by seven years of pent-up desire. Um, It's a fairly graphic phrase there that you may have read between the lines, give me my wife that I may go into her. Um, That means what you think it means. And so Laban takes advantage of it. He took Leah, his older daughter, um, presumably dressed her in wedding garb, which would be complete with a veil over her face. And in the darkness of night, he brought her to Jacob and they went together into this dark tent. And Jacob consummated the marriage with the wrong daughter. Once morning came, obviously the truth is revealed. Jacob woke up with a start. This was not what he expected. And uh, and yet it's too late. The, the, the marriage has been consummated. Laban feigns outrage. He, he tries to kind of take a false moral high ground here. Well, it's not our custom to marry uh, the younger before the older, but obviously an honest man um, would have made that clear about seven years ago. Laban uh, is ready with a solution, though. Um, once the, the customary week of honeymoon is over, um, completed with Leah, then, then take Rachel as well. And once you have Rachel as your wife, then you can work another year, uh, seven years, and, and pay her off. Um, and so this is the, the end of this portion of the story of the life of, of Jacob. He's, he's taken two sister wives, and the tragic but understandable statement at the end is that he loved Rachel more than Leah. Um, once again, we see 
the Bible's not saying this is a good thing, that he had two wives or two sisters as wives. Um, in fact, we'll go on later in Leviticus to say it is absolutely unacceptable to take two sisters as wives. And actually, it's, it's proof of the veracity of Scripture. Um, they didn't go back and edit this. When, when Leviticus was written, they didn't go, oh boy, we better clean up the life of Jacob because that looks real bad if it's inconsistent. No, we see that Jacob's life was a mess. He was not doing what God intended here. This was not right. And, and so we ask, what do we do with this? What do we learn from this story? How do we make application of this? Um, if you were in small group this last week, if your small group is on track as we're working through this uh, Behold Your God series, um, what are we looking for as we read God's word? There's no verse here that we can put on a coffee mug. There's no, there's no pill to take from the medicine cabinet and walk away with. No nugget that makes us feel better. What's the purpose of this text? Well, ultimately, the purpose of this text is the purpose of all of Scripture. It's to reveal God to us, that we can see Him. He's showing us who He is and how He works. And, and so when we look at it through that lens, we see the Lord's purpose in Jacob's life. The first half of, the, of this passage paralleled with uh, chapter 24, where Rebekah is found at the well. The second half contains a lot of parallels to chapter 25 and chapter 27, where, where Jacob was tricking and deceiving Esau and Isaac. The key phrase in the middle of this section, verse 25, Jacob says to Laban, why have you done this to me? Why have you deceived me? Echoing the words of Esau, the words of Isaac, reminds us of that parallel Esau and Isaac had both been burned by Jacob's deceit. Genesis 27, 36, Esau said, uh, Is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has cheated me these two times? He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. The deceiver has been deceived. And just as he had taken advantage of Esau's fleshly desperation for food and obtaining his birthright, and he'd taken advantage of his father's blindness and, and the weakness of his senses as they were dulled by age. Now Laban takes advantage of Jacob's fleshly desire, eagerness for a wife, and tricks him in the darkness when his eyes are dimmed and his senses are befuddled by excess of alcohol. The salt and the wound, just to top it off, uh, as Jacob makes this protest against Laban, why have you deceived me? The response is, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. There's this interplay. The prophecy from Jacob's birth, before his birth, that the, the older would serve the younger, and yet they twisted that and went about it the wrong way. That was the source of the, the mess in their home. Those words must have hit Jacob like a hot knife in the chest. All of these things are coming together. This is the Lord at work. This is God's poetic justice working its way out. He's bringing Jacob's very same sin back again to rest on him. Maybe you've been through something similar. The Lord's justice in that. Something you've done to others that then comes back around to you. Now, before we chase this much further... I want to put it in context of the, of the bigger picture. God is not rejecting Jacob, right? God is not abandoning his plan because of, of Jacob's sin. In fact, the Lord will continue his good plan, even using the deceitfulness of Laban. Um, this is getting into next week's sermon, but you can see down in verse 35, the very end of the chapter, Leah, the unloved wife, will give birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Four sons that will become four of the 12 tribes of Israel. And through Judah in particular, God would eventually fulfill his ultimate promise, his ultimate blessing in bringing the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so God's not removing his blessing from Jacob. He's not, he's not abandoning him. Far from it. He's still working out this plan. The Lord promised to be with him, to protect him, to bless him through him, to bless the whole world, and, and he will be faithful to that promise, absolutely. And so if that's the case, what's going on here? 
If the Lord promised to to bless Jacob, why is Jacob here? Why is he bringing him back into his, in, in, in being haunted by his sin? Why is everything falling apart? Well, there's an important distinction that has to be made here. This is not punishment. This is discipline. This is not punishment. This is discipline. And, 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 and I think we don't always use those words properly. We need to be precise here. Punishment. Punishment is paying the penalty for wrong you have done. We call it retributive justice. You get retribution for what you did. That's the way our legal system at least used to work. If you killed someone, you forfeited your life, either by execution or by a life sentence in jail. That's why we called it paying your debt to society. Because you owed something. Romans 6.23, the Lord says, the wages of sin is death. There is retribution. Isaiah 13.11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. God is a God of judgment, right? Judgment. He will punish all evil. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says this about the wicked. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God is holy and righteous and just. God will punish all wicked. We ought to tremble before that. If that were where the story ended, it would be a much shorter Bible, wouldn't it? Adam and Eve would have sinned against God and that would have been the end of it. But God's plan, God's purpose is is bigger than that. From the very beginning, God's plan was to put his glory on display to show his character, his grace, his mercy, as well as his justice by rescuing a remnant of humanity out from the penalty of sin, out from under that punishment that they still rightly deserved. And he would accomplish that by by coming himself in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And there he would take on himself the punishment for sin that we deserved. So those who have new life in him, those who have come to Jesus in, in repentance and faith, will be reunited with him then for an eternity in the, in the new creation. This restoration to better than the Garden of Eden. There will be no sin, no death, no sickness, no pain, no tears or sorrow of any kind because the penalty of sin, all of their sin, past, present, future, the punishment for all of it was actually, truly, fully and completely paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, in our case, those who trust in the Lord, we look back, see that our sin has been paid for. In Jacob's case, he's receiving these promises. He's looking forward, trusting that it would be paid for. But in both scenarios, the full punishment of sin, all of it either was or would be paid by Jesus. So the sacrifices were about through the Old Testament. It was was confessing your trust in the promise that God would pay for sin. And so then, for those who are in Christ, for those who are trusting in the Lord, it would therefore be unjust. It would be absolutely unrighteous for one drop of punishment for sin to fall on someone for whom Christ died. Can't be done because God is just. God is righteous. That's double jeopardy. If Christ paid the price, there's nothing left for those who are in him. Nothing. That's why Paul can say with confidence, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. It's paid for. The cross of Christ took all of it. If you are in Christ, you will receive exactly zero judgment, exactly no condemnation for your sin, none. Your sin. Think about that. Past, present, future, it's paid for can't be demanded again. So then, what is going on with Jacob? How do we understand God's justice and God's faithfulness and Jesus' sacrifice if Jacob is now being revisited by the consequences of his sin? How do we understand our own lives? 
I've trusted in Christ, and yet there's this hardship and there's this trial, and it seems to directly related to my sin. How do I understand God in this? Because it feels like judgment. What's going on, God? And our lives are so obviously filled with sin and then filled with difficulty. If there is no condemnation, then what is this? It's not judgment. It's not condemnation. It's discipline. It's discipline. And they're radically, radically different. Where where God's judgment and punishment might be a little more severe and harsh than you were expecting, God's discipline is far more loving and gracious and kind than we expect. Discipline is God's absolute loving kindness toward us. Looking at the life of Jacob, we're reminded the Lord doesn't just stop with forgiveness of sin. It doesn't end there. Because even though we're freed from the penalty of sin, we're out from under the condemnation of sin, we still live with the presence of sin. It still dwells in us. If you've been a Christian for more than about 10 minutes, I hope you've realized that. Forgiveness doesn't mean eradication. If you think of your heart like a country, it was once ruled by a wicked dictator, set on self-destruction. You were under the power of sin and you lived under the tyranny of its control, powerless to overthrow it, even to rebel against it. When the Lord saved you, he, he liberated the government of your heart. He sat himself on the throne of your life. You are his and he rules. And yet, there remain these pockets of rebellion in the country of our heart. These, these, these holdouts of, of people and, and gangs loyal to the old regime. Now the country has been won. That's settled. There is no reversal. You don't overthrow Jesus from his throne. But there's this long process of guerrilla warfare in our lives, in the hills and jungles of our heart seeking out and destroying the, the remnants of that old sinful establishment. The Lord's discipline is that process. It's tearing down the fortification of sin that remains. And it is the love of God. It is the love of God that rescued us from the punishment of sin, and it is the love of God that is progressively rescuing us from the presence of sin. That process is often painful, it's often difficult, but it is absolutely love. Hebrews 12, 11 says it this way. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's what the Lord's doing in the life of Jacob. Jacob is not seeing the Lord. He's not trusting the Lord. He's living as the hero in his own movie and he's, and he's not doing too great at it if you can see the whole picture. And the Lord says, we need to work on that, Mr. Deceiver. We're gonna let you feel exactly what Isaac and Esau felt. I'm gonna show you what sin looks like. I'm gonna humble you. I'm going to break your pride. That's what God is doing in the life of Jacob, and that's what God is doing in your life and my life right now. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. God says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12 will use this as evidence of your salvation. If you're not receiving discipline, then you don't have God as a father because God is a good father. He's not a derelict father. He, he disciplines his children. God disciplines those whom he loves. He disciplines those whom he delights in. Believer, in the trial, in the darkness, wondering what's God's heart to me toward this? Is this God's judgment? Is God angry at me? Does God hate me? Is that why I'm feeling this? No, God delights in you. He loves you as he brings you through difficulty, as he works out your sanctification. God disciplines those he loves and delights in. 
like a loving surgeon removing the last remnants of a cancerous tumor. He carefully and precisely cuts away at our sin so that we might be restored, so that one day we might be brought to to perfect health. Of course, the completion of that will be on the day that he comes again, that we are given new bodies in the resurrection. We continue to grow in that. Where's the Lord's discipline happening in your life right now? What are the trials that you're facing? Where's where's your sin causing pain and, and turmoil and frustration? Do you see it as the Lord's discipline? Now, there's an unhelpful, unhelpful trap there. Uh, it's easy to begin to, to spiral into introspection and speculation, right? What did I do that caused this? Which sin was it that brought this trial? And, and what, what lesson does God want me to learn so that this can stop? God, what is it? And I'm trying to figure out um, what I need to stop doing so that, I'll, so that I'll come out of this trial. It doesn't work that way. That's folly. Not every trial is the direct result of a specific sin. We live in a sinful, broken world. We face all kinds of hardships and suffering just because sin exists. And the Lord works through those for our sanctification, for our good. And though the Lord will use every trial for our discipline, for our growth in him, it's not as though you learn your lesson and the trial goes away. It's just not that neat and tidy. It is a long process of growing and trusting him. And on top of that, God's not hiding anything from you. It's not a guessing game. What do I need to learn? God, where is it? I don't know. No, God will teach you what he wants you to learn. He's able to do that. Just trust him. Walk forward through it. Jacob toiled in Haran under Laban for 20 years in the end. I'm sure he often wondered what the Lord was doing. I'm sure he often struggled with with doubt and frustration and exhaustion. And though he may not have, have seen or understood every step along the way, as we zoom out, we see he He left the promised land as Jacob the deceiver. He would come back as Israel the patriarch. Changed, transformed. God did an amazing work through that time. He did it in Jacob and he's doing it in us. His salvation is is both our our justification, our, our immediate removal of punishment, declaration of our innocence before him, And this long, slow process of sanctification, the removal of the presence of sin in us. Do you trust him? Do you trust him in that? Do you see his loving care in the midst of that? And we can trust him because he gave us his son. Because Jesus died. Not just to start the process of our salvation, but to complete it. We so often quote Romans 8, 28, that that God will work for the good of, um, that in all things God works for good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. And that's great. We can apply that all kinds of places, but this is what it's specifically about. He goes on to talk about um, those whom God foreknew, he predestined and he called and he is sanctifying that they may become, that Christ may be one of many brothers, that we be transformed into the image of Christ. What is the good that God is doing in all situations? Your sanctification your transformation in him. We celebrate that together with confidence. He who gave his own, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will also along with him graciously give us all things. All things what? All things that we need to be sanctified, to be closer to him, to walk in holiness. Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 12 talking about um, how the Lord disciplines those he loves and it's not always pleasant but painful but produces that peaceful fruit of righteousness. And he, he goes on to say that it produces holiness in us and without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That process has to happen. So we look at the cross and we see God's work and we know that he came not just to start the process. Jesus died not just to begin it, but to purchase it in its wholeness, its completeness. 
He died in my place. My punishment was on him. And so we declare our ongoing need for him. That I need him again today. That I'm continuing to rely on him day after day after day. Our ongoing trust in him through the middle of it. Works out is, is he works out salvation in, in us. I, I trusted him to begin with and was made new in Christ. And we testify to that in our baptism. And I am continuing to walk with him and trust in him day after day after day. And we testify to that in taking communion together. That we need him. That's where we're going to end our service. Roman, why don't you come prepare to, to lead us? We continue to feast on him um, until the day he returns because he's working out this good plan in us. Let me pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have sent your son for we who were so unworthy, for we who were rebels against you, and you were so gracious. Thank you that as we look to the cross and we see the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, that we have hope that we too might be united with him in a death like his so that we may be united with him in a resurrection like his. To know you, to walk with you, that one day we will be with you fully and completely in glory. But God, give us patience. Give us endurance as we walk with you today, step by step. Lord, help us to see your love. Help us to see your kindness in your discipline as you sanctify us and purify us. And Lord, as we gather to, to sing your praise, to take of communion again today, we declare again, Lord, that we live and breathe in Christ, that he is the, the food and drink of our spiritual life, that we need him, and that we trust in what you have accomplished on the cross of Christ. And we praise you for it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, as we sing, the elements will be handed out. You're going to find two cups, the bread on the top, the juice on the bottom. Um, just hang on to it. Um, we'll sing together and then uh, partake together. Um, would you stand as we sing?